0: Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much, Lord. And we are just, man, thank you, God. Thank you for everything that you've done as we've had six weeks to gather together and sit under your word, Lord. Thank you that uh, you've given us the space to go deep, to not settle for what's on the surface, but to really press in and know you more, Lord, because that is just what our heart craves. Lord, you've marked each one of us with a yearning, with a longing, and our hearts are just restless until they rest in you. And so, God, as we um, come to you tonight and as we wrap this study up, teach us to rest in you. Be our true and greater reality. We want Paul's vision, Lord. We want that vision of you. We want your peace. We want your joy. And we want to share it with others, God. And so help us do that. We love you. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. So some of you know that I recently changed jobs and uh, am just loving it. I am not getting up at 3.30 in the morning anymore. And so that alone is cause for all the celebration, just all of it, right? The thank you, that deserves applause. That really does. Anytime you don't have to get up at 3.30 in the morning, we should celebrate that. Uh, but, so I've spent the last um, 23 years in radio here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. 20 of that was in morning radio. And when people find that out about me, there are two questions they inevitably ask. The first is, oh my gosh, what time do you get up? And I tell them 3.30. And then the, follow- the next question is always oh my gosh, what time do you go to bed? And at that is, I my honest answer is I aim. I aim for eight. I don't often hit it, maybe once or twice a month. But uh, then I typically get asked another question and that's this, how do you do it? And the answer is you just do it. I mean, there's a paycheck involved, bills, mortgages, so you just do it. But you really do get used to living your life at about 65 to 70%. You know, you just kind of get you... Am I clicking? Are we having earring clicks? No? We're good? Okay. I keep hearing phantom clicking. Okay. Um, But you do. You just sort of get used to living life at 65 to 70%. And tired just becomes a way of life for you. And you kind of forget what it's like to not be tired until you go on vacation. Oh, my gosh. I I would take a two-week vacation twice a year. And I lived... For those vacations. I, it took me about a week to get used to the fact that I was not getting up at 3.30 in the morning. So it took me like a week to just come down from my job. And then that next week was amazing. And here's, here's where I'm going with this. Life is always throwing things at us. There is never not something to be anxious about. Am I right? There is never not something to be upset about. It's just always, it's all the time. But that week before vacation, like, you could not get under my skin if you tried. And that Friday before we left for vacation, I mean, that was like, I was a a helium hot air balloon and you just could not shoot me down. I mean, you could give me extra work and that's fine because it's Friday before vacation. I get to get out of here and not think about you for two weeks. And so, I mean, someone could be rude to me. People could cut me off in traffic and... I just could not escape my good mood because it was the Friday before vacation. And, and tonight, we're going to talk about Paul's joy because I think that Paul lived his life like it was Friday before vacation. If you think about it, I mean, he just had that Friday before vacation mentality. He rejoiced in his chains in his imprisonment because the gospel was going forth. He was so thrilled that people were preaching Christ that he did not care about their motives. They were preaching because they wanted to get under his skin. Fine, go for it. Um, He didn't care what Rome did because he was a citizen of heaven and it didn't matter. Um, You know, you want to throw him in jail, that's fine. He'll just, I don't know, write scripture, you know. I mean, they just couldn't knock him down no matter how hard they tried. If they tortured him for some bizarre reason that just energized people to share the gospel even more. You wanna kill him? Great, now he gets to be with Christ forever and that's what his heart really wants. And so what I want us to do is I want us to try and figure out how Paul got there. We talked early on, I think it was the very first night of this study that Paul had such a robust, rich vision of Christ that he was able to live his life. Life like Friday before vacation. And so what we're gonna do tonight, we're gonna do this just a little differently. We are only going to go through the first 13 verses of chapter four, because I really wanna camp down on Paul's joy. That's where I want us to land, and that's where I want us to camp and spend the majority of our time tonight. If you um, are feeling a little bit slighted by that, I apologize. It's for time's sake that we can't go through the back half of this chapter, but I will say that we did a really thorough treatment of that in the homework, and I don't know that I necessarily have anything to add to that anyway. So if you want to, if you were not able to get to this week's homework, you can go through the last couple days, and you will be thoroughly walked through the last half of this chapter. So let's get started, uh, because Paul really wants the Philippians to share in his joy, and he wants us to do that as well. But before we get to his joy, we have a little issue that we have to iron out, and we see that in 4, verse 2. 4 verse 2, Paul writes, I appeal to Yodia and I appeal to Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I say also to you, true companion, this is the person who's reading the letter, we don't know who that is, help them. They have struggled together in the gospel ministry along with me and Clement and my other co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Okay, so what is going on here? Well, in your homework, we talked about how Yodia and Syntyche are Greek women who are in leadership leadership positions in the Philippian church. Why do we think that? Well, the language that Paul is using here seems to suggest that he is looking at them as peers or as equals. He calls them co-workers. He calls them co-laborers. He is not calling them out because he's mad at them. And I think we really need to, uh, to make note of that because when Paul is angry at someone, he tends to not call them out by name. He tends to talk around them, not in every occasion, but most of the time when he is addressing someone by name, it's because there's a deep, intimate, loving friendship relationship that is already in place. So Paul is addressing these two women directly, not because he's mad at them, but because he deeply loves them. So one of the major themes of this letter, as we have seen, is Unity. It's unity uh, in the church. Unity with Christ. Unity with each other. And the problem that they seem to be having is a problem of disunity. And Paul wants them to agree in the Lord. Why does he want them to do that? It's the main argument of the whole letter because he wants them to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that means that the world needs to see them and the world needs to see us working together. Not all of this Christian infighting, but working together, spending more time on what we agree agree on than on what we disagree on. In chapter two, we saw this, Philippians 2, 14 through 16, do everything without grumbling or arguing. He may have been thinking about these two women in this occasion, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights in the world by holding on to the word of life. And so one of the things that makes people stop and take notice of us is simply our kindness to one another. I mean, think about it. In the Botham-Jean trial, you remember that his brother hugged the woman who shot his brother. Uh, Botham-Jean's brother hugged the woman, the police officer that had accidentally shot him. That made front page news all over the planet. They shined. He shined like a star in a dark world. Why? Because he offered forgiveness, because he offered kindness And and so this is one of the things that sets us apart and this is one of the things that we really need to be focusing on, especially as things just tend to get darker and darker. We shine as lights in the world by holding on to the word of life and that word holding on, that is like cleaving. And I don't know if you know what cleaving looks like. It means adhering to. So if you have a pot and you have paint, you have two objects but once you paint that pot and the paint has set, you have one object and that's a painted pot, right? That's what, that's what holding fast looks like. That's the picture that the Bible is painting there. And so regardless of where we live in the world, the call on our lives is to conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven. Why? Because the world is watching. The world is watching us. And the world will not even begin to listen to our words if our words don't match our actions, It's funny. They say that body language uh, accounts for over half of what we say. And so one of the reasons I'm a big fan of face-to-face conversations is because you can't read tone no matter how many emojis I use. I cannot communicate all the emotion that I want to communicate. However, body language and and the things we do speak volumes. And that's what someone reads before they ever hear what we have to say. So Yodia and Syntyche, was their issue a big deal? Well, I think it probably was simply from the fact that Paul had heard about it and he saw fit to address it. He asks his true companion to help them. And that simply tells us that every now and then, We're going to bump into issues with people we dearly love, and we are going to need an outside party who's objective to help us navigate that. That's a biblical principle right there, is that we are going to clash. We're... Human people wearing skin, we're always going to clash and we're going to step on each other's toes and we are not going to see eye to eye. And when that happens, the loving thing to do is to get a, a third party and, and sit down and try to work these things out for the glory of Christ. But I do think that we need to note that he only spent two sentences on it. I mean, he just, he. He touched on it and then he bounced right off and he went on to something else. And this is what he says next. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let everyone see your gentleness. The Lord is near. Now we saw Paul say this exact same thing except for one word in chapter three, verse one. And I think that if this letter, if this little book, the book of Philippians were a song, the chorus would be rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord Again, I say rejoice. Paul brings up joy or rejoicing 13 times. And so, what I want to do is, I want to go back and I want to look at, I want us to pinpoint what exactly Paul's occasions for joy are. Why is he so joyful? In his opening, chapter 1, verse 4, he tells the Philippians that he always prays with joy because of their participation in the gospel. And so Paul is taking great joy that the Philippians are sharing Christ with people. They're evangelizing, and that fills his heart with joy. Chapter 1, verse 18, he rejoices that people in Rome, where he's imprisoned, are preaching Christ. He doesn't care what their motives are, he's just ecstatic that they're preaching Christ. It gives him joy verse 25, even though to live is Christ and to die is gain, Paul decides that he will remain in the body for their progress and their joy in the faith. And so Paul finds great joy in um, when other people are growing in spiritual maturity and the joy that comes from that. So their joy is his joy. Paul tells them to rejoice, even if he's being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice of their faith. And the drink offering language here is reminiscent of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so what Paul's doing, it's referring to the fact that Paul is suffering on behalf of Christ. And you may recall in uh, verse 29, chapter 1, verse 29, Paul wrote that it has been what? Granted to believers, not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. And so Paul sees suffering for Christ as an occasion for joy. Paul encourages them to rejoice when he sends Epaphroditus back to him. He wants them to rejoice in each other and knowing that they're rejoicing in each other gives him cause to rejoice. What I want you to see, what I really want you to notice here is that Paul's joy never comes from prosperity. It never comes from comfy or cushy circumstances, like we never hear about Paul having joy because, I don't know, he got an award. We, we just His joy is almost always attached to suffering, attached to the gospel expanding, or attached to his relationships. That's what his joy is attached to. It has nothing to do with his health. It has nothing to do with his wealth. It has nothing to do with his social status. It has nothing to do with anything, any of the things that we tend to attach our joy to. We tend to tie our joy very closely to circumstances. Do we not? I know we do. I do. If things are going well, we rejoice. But man, I mean, they don't even have to go bad. They just have to go meh, right? I mean, it doesn't even have to be a bad day. It can be a meh, nothing's really happening kind of day. And I'm like meh, meh, you know? But that's not Paul. Joy is not something Paul has. This is what I really want us to understand tonight. Joy is something Paul practices. Joy is something that Paul practices. It's something he chooses. Joy is something he puts on and walks out, and he does it every single day. I would even argue that Paul uses joy as a weapon, He uses joy to fight back despondency. He uses joy to fight back health problems. He uses joy to fight back the fact that the gospel isn't expanding where he wants it to. He fights with joy. And he can live this way because he is so deeply rooted in Christ that Christ has become his true and better reality. For Paul, Christ is his true and better reality. So, what does that mean? It means understanding and knowing and believing that what we see is not all there is to see what we see is not all there is to see. And there's this excellent illustration of this principle in the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there. I will put the scriptures on the screen, but the book of Second Kings tells a really wacko story. It's a really bizarre story, but I love it. So you remember the story of the Old Testament. The first king was Saul. Remember that? And then after Saul was David, and then David's son Solomon took the throne. And then after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam took the throne, but he was cheeky, cheeky little monkey, and the kingdom split, and we had ten tribes go to the north, and that was the house of Israel, and we had two tribes stay to the south, and that was the house of Judah. And it was the house of Israel that went off the rails like immediately. They had no kings. Zero, zero good kings. So we get to we get to um, a little further into the story, and we have this occasion where the king of Syria decides he's going to overthrow Israel. So we are in the 10 tribes to the north. But there's just a little problem. Here's the problem. There's this guy in Israel named Elisha. He is a prophet of God, and he hears directly from the Lord. And so whenever the king of Syria makes plans to attack Israel... God kind of notifies Elisha and he goes to the king of Israel and he tells them where the king of Syria is going to be. And so he keeps thwarting their plans. And the king of Syria is getting really good and frustrated because he wants to overthrow Israel and he can't. And so he figures that there's a traitor in his army, right? There's a rat in his crew. And so he tells one of his servants, You got to go out there and you got to root out the rat. And the servant's like, Well, there's not a rat. But there is a prophet in Israel and yeah, he is telling the king of Israel the things you say in your bedroom. And so the Syrian king finds out where Elisha lives and he sends horses and chariots and a great army to surround the city of Dothan, which is where Elisha lives. Let's pick it up. Chapter 6, verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and he said, Please strike this people with blindness. So God struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. There's more to see than what we can see. And Paul knew that. As a Jew, he grew up hearing the stories of the Old Testament. And as a Pharisee, he was interpreting the scripture for the Jews. And he knew that there's more to see than what we can see. And because of that, Friday before, before vacation. That's how he lived his whole life, Friday before vacation. And Christ is our true and better reality And when we can live in that reality, y'all, joy comes naturally. It's not something we have to muster up. It's the overflow of our relationship with Christ joy comes naturally when we root ourselves in Christ. And so, and so does gentleness. Paul said, let everyone see your gentleness. In the homework I had, you look up the word gentle. In Merriam-Webster, it says free from harshness, sternness, or violence. Have any of you ever had a friend where their shtick is, why just tell it like it is? Have you ever I had that friend in high school, and then I had another friend like that in college, and their whole shtick was that they were tough, and they were honest, and they were not afraid to tell you, and they just told it like it was. Like, that's some kind of virtue. <laughs> like, that's not a virtue, right? Honesty is a virtue. Honesty is a virtue. Truth is a virtue when you see someone caught in a downward spiral of sin and risky behavior. Yes, the loving thing to do is to lovingly call it out. But there is an element of earning the right to speak truth into someone's life. You have to have some relational capital before you can just tell it like it is. That's my thing. I just tell it like it is. I don't care what you think. I don't care what people think. Of me, I tell it like it is. That is not gentle. That is harsh. That's emotionally violent. That's not gentle. Because I have spent the last 23 years of my life either on the radio or on stage sharing big chunks of my life, I am an open book. It is just easier for me if everybody knows everything about me because then I don't have to wonder what people know. Um, And not too long ago, I shared a piece of my testimony about my journey with alcoholism. And as soon as I got off the stage, a gentleman cornered me for about 15 minutes at telling me exactly what I needed to do with my life, exactly where to find his recovery group, exactly when they met and why if I didn't do this, I was just dooming myself back to a life of alcoholism. And I just thought, you do not have the relational capital with me to tell me this. You don't know me. You don't know my story. You know the smidge I chose to share with you but you have not earned this right with me. And I think he meant well. I I really do. I think he probably meant well, but that's not gentle. That is not a gentle approach. Gentleness means treating someone with care. I love the the Greek word. It's uh, epikase. Epikase can also be translated this way. Not insisting on all of your rights. Yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant. This was counterintuitive in Paul's day in an honor-shame-driven society where people were always jockeying for position. People did not give up their rights. They demanded them. They did not yield. They pushed. They insisted. But with us, it should be different. And then Paul gives them this reminder. He says, the Lord is near. I, I, I love this. I love this verse, the Lord is near. Paul is pulling from his Jewish heritage here because the very hallmark of the God of the Bible is that he is a God who is near. Deuteronomy 4, 7, Moses wrote, for what great nation is there that has a God near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? And Psalm 145, 18 says the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. This is so wildly different than the gods of the pagan nations of the Old Testament or any of the gods and goddesses in the Greco-Roman pantheon. The Greco-Roman pantheon had many gods who were high up and far off but well, we have one God who comes down to be near. The Greco-Roman gods were wackadoodles. They were big, immature doofuses that had to be appeased with various kinds of sacrifice. But our God pursues us and sacrificed himself so that we could draw near to him. His very name, Emmanuel, means God with us. And this was what set the God of Israel apart from all the other gods. What did God do? What did God give to Moses when he met with him on Mount Sinai? He gave him the 10 commandments that they could follow them so that the Lord could dwell within their midst because the Lord loved his people and wanted to dwell within their midst. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, tell your request to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This verse has really been misunderstood. And I want to park on this for a few minutes. Um, Maybe you, like me, have heard some well-meaning churchy people cite this verse and say that worry and anxiety and fear are sinful. All right, God commands us not to fear. Jesus told us not to worry. Paul says, don't be anxious. So if you do any of those things that we are commanded not to do, we are in violation of God's law. That sounds logical, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. I think there are a couple of reasons why these verses tend to be misunderstood. Uh, One, I blame Bible apps. I don't know if any of you listen to a Bible app and I know there's lots of them out there and I think I just chose the bad one. But when I listen to the Bible, man, my guy is so cranky. He's British, he's cranky, everything sounds stern. I feel like he probably has permanent creases between his brows because he's just reading scripture so angry. But here's the thing, I think that we sometimes do that. When we're reading scripture, I think we sometimes read things that are really meant to be this warm blanket of encouragement, but we read it in this tone as though God were frustrated with us. And I actually think a lot of us walk around with this underwriting current, this disquiet feeling that God is disappointed with us. God's not disappointed with us. I mean, we are meeting his expectations. (laughs) He knew we would be messy and broken and we would need a savior. And so he sent one. We have 100% lived up to God's expectations of us. God is not disappointed in you. He is not disappointed in your progress. He is not frustrated with you. He loves you, but did you know he also likes you? Like he really likes you. He's really, really, really enamored with you. He is not frustrated with you. Be anxious for nothing. That's not his tone. Has that been Paul's character up until this point? I mean, he was just chastising Yodia and Syntyche, and even that was wrapped in love and sugar, right? I mean, even that was wrapped in love. The very next words out of his mouth are rejoice. You don't say that when you're berating someone. I want you to look at something and then I want you to tell me if you think God's posture toward you is one of frustration. Matthew nine thirty six. when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Luke twelve thirty two. fear not little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Do you know what I hear? Come here. Come to daddy. Come to daddy. I know, I know, I know. Come here, just come here. I'll make it better. We'll get through this. Just come to daddy. That's how I hear that. God is a loving and compassionate father who understands that his children are frightened and overwhelmed and those are not sinful emotions. They're just emotions. They're just emotions. Anxiety and depression, worry, that's not disobedience. That is not disobedient. That is a normal piece of humanity. That is a normal part of being human. Maybe you've seen someone share a scripture graphic that says, God has said, do not fear 365 times in the Bible. I don't know if that's true or not. I know he says it a ton. I know it's one of the more oft-repeated commands in scripture. But here's the thing. Doesn't even the fact that he has to say it so often tell us something? It's not that he's mad. He's mad. But he knows we need to hear it. He, he knows we need to be reminded. Those of you who've had little children go through the fear and the dark phase, you've got to tell them the same thing every night. you got to look under the bed every single night. Okay, look behind your clothes. Nothing in the closet. I know mommy's right down the hall. I'm right down the hall. Don't be afraid. And it doesn't frustrate you. It's just part of having kids, right? It's part of having people. God knows that. I mean, he made us right? Jesus suffered such great anxiety in the garden of Gethsemane that his sweat was like drops of blood. Paul said that he wanted them to rejoice when they saw Epaphroditus so that he would have less anxiety. It is part of the human condition. And so Paul is not commanding the people not to worry. Rather, everything in his letter up until this point has been making a case for why they don't have to. Indicatives before imperatives. Remember that? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The imperative is the mood of this is how I want things to be. And oftentimes we see it in commands or in prayers or in pleading and begging. The indicative mood is the mood of this is how it is. This is reality as I see it. Well, the phrase do not be anxious is in the imperative mood. But what's our indicative? The Lord is near. And because the Lord is near, we don't need to be anxious. In light of the Lord's nearness, we can take comfort. What are our indicatives? What do we know to be true about the Lord? We know we're loved. We know we're seen. We know he hears our our prayers. We know our eternity is secure. And we know that he promises to meet our needs. Therefore, we can be anxious for nothing. And then I just love Paul's practicality. He gives us a method on how to carry this out. Instead of worrying... In every situation, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In your homework, we talked about cognitive behavior therapy. And some of you are probably familiar with this. Cognitive behavioral behavior therapy, CBT. And Paul is using classic CBT. It's based on three premises. Here they are. Cognitive behavior therapy is based on the fact that we suffer psychologically because we think unhealthy thoughts. Number two, we learn unhealthy thought patterns from trauma, perceived trauma, or those in our environment. And number three, we can learn to change our thought patterns. We can learn how to think healthy thoughts. We can do that. How do we change those thought patterns? We have to train ourselves to think differently. And what do you have to do when you're training for something? You have to practice. And what is practice? Repetition, 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 repetition. And Paul says this, instead, in every situation, good, bad, indifferent, in every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, tell your request to God. Okay, so pray, enter into a dialogue with God. How often? All the time. Ongoing dialogue with the Lord. Petition, ask God for what you need. It doesn't matter how big or how small it is. It doesn't matter that other people are worse off than you. It doesn't matter if your prayer request feels trivial. God is saying, I'm the only one who can handle all of what you're going through. You can't handle it. I didn't create you to be able to handle it. So bring it to me. Big, small, indifferent. The size of your ask is not important. Our attitude, however, is. We are to pray from a spirit of gratitude. One of the commentators that I use, his name is Gordon Fee. He says this, Thanksgiving does not mean to say thank you in response to or in advance of gifts that you think you'll receive. Rather, it is the absolutely basic posture of the believer and the proper context for petitioning God. And so that got me thinking about Thanksgiving as a posture, an attitude of gratitude as lifestyle. And so I started to do some research and I came across this study that University of California, Berkeley did uh, four years ago. They had 300-ish students who were all seeking help for depression and anxiety through their student counseling services. And so they divided the students into three groups of about 100 each. And so all three groups were seeing counselors, but then they had each group do different things. And so group One, they had them, every week, they had them writing gratitude letters to people, people who had blessed them, and making lists of things that they were grateful for. Group two had to write down all their negative thoughts and emotions, all right? And then group three did not have any writing project, but all three remained in counseling. And not only did group one show significantly more relief over the other two groups in regards to their depression and anxiety and their overall mental health. But MRI scans showed that the gratitude group had improved mental health three months after the exercise was over. Isn't that amazing? The simple act of practicing gratitude rewires your brain. I love it when science catches up to the Bible. That's the coolest thing rejoice in the Lord. It's a safeguard for you. Rejoice in the Lord who is near. Because the Lord is near, you don't need to worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Just keep that open dialogue running. And when you need something, you ask. But when you ask, ask in a spirit of gratitude, remembering that the Lord is the giver of all gifts. And when you do the peace of God that surpasses understanding, it means it doesn't make sense. It means that you can experience peace that defies your worst circumstances. What will it do? It will guard your hearts and minds. That is an active verb. It will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is military language. And this word, uh, it's phoreo. It means to put a garrison of troops around a city. We just saw this word in the story in 2 Kings chapter 6. What did God do? He put a garrison of the heavenly host around Elijah more that were with them than were with the Syrians. That is the peace that guards your heart and mind. It is set as a garrison around you. And there's another component to this. And this is the one I think we really miss. And I I did not even think of this until I was researching for tonight's lesson. The other component is community. Community. All right, in 21st century America, we have individualized our religion. Depeche Mode said it best back in 1989. Who knows where I'm going? Your own personal. You're going to leave me hanging? Jesus. Come on, you know the song. Um, everyone has their own personal Jesus, their own relationship with Jesus. Our faith is about our individual walk, and it's between us and Jesus and no one else. So that would be so foreign to the people who were reading Paul's letter and the people of the Old Testament. That is just not how life was lived at all. Um, Faith was corporate. Faith was corporately experienced. It was corporately practiced. And so, yes, each individual Philippian would have a personal faith in Jesus a personal relationship with Jesus, but all of the practicing of their faith would have been done in a group. Um, The broader understanding is that faith was something to be practiced in community. They rejoiced over Jesus together. They took communion together. They confessed their sins together. They shared joys and concerns together. They prayed together. They petitioned God together. They gave thanks together. And as a group, God gave them as a collective a peace that guarded them, that carried them when they went out into their imperial cult worshiping culture that was oppressing them. And I wonder, I just wonder if perhaps the reason we struggle so much with worry and anxiety is because we are trying to do this by ourselves. And we are not built for that, our God exists in community. We, we put such a high priority on individualism and independence and moving out, moving on and doing it yourself. And God's like, why? Why? I mean, I'm thinking he's saying, I did not wire you for individuality. I wired you for roommates, like, I, I wired you for people. I wired you for BFFs. I wired you for a small group. I created you for community. And He made us dependent on purpose. And that means none of us are going to find peace if we're trying to do this by ourselves. None of us are going to escape anxiety if we're trying to process through this ourselves. We're always going to be depressed and meh if we're just doing this by ourselves. God is a God that exists in community. We can't preach to ourselves. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to get your heart to buy into what your head knows? Why is that? Do you know how long I have been studying the Bible like this? Why can't I get it through? Like my head knows it. I know it. But my heart doesn't want to believe it. Not when it's my life that's cratering. Not when it's my kid that's struggling. Not when it's my finances that are faltering. We cannot preach to ourselves. We must have each other. We cannot make our heart believe what our head knows to be true. That is why we need each other. God wired us that way. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if something is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things and what you learned and received and heard and saw in me, do these things. And the God of peace will be with you. I hear echoes of Matthew 7, 24 in this. The wise and foolish builder. Both people were hearers of the word. But the one that had security was the one who did the word. The storm came on both of them. But it was the one who built his foundation on the rock. The one who heard the word and did what it said. Who had the security whatever is true whatever is worthy whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely this is cognitive behavior therapy this is retraining and rewiring your brain to think healthy thoughts Verse 10, I have great joy in the Lord because now at last you have again expressed your concern for me. Now I know you were concerned before but had no opportunity to do anything. I'm not saying this because I'm in need for I have learned to be content in any circumstance. I've experienced times of need and times of abundance. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment whether I go satisfied or hungry, Have plenty or nothing, I am able to do all things through the one who strengthens me. I can do all things through the one who strengthens me. This is not about winning a football game. This is not about starting a small business. This is not about climbing Mount Everest. If we are going to take this verse in its proper context, and we are, it means that because Paul finds his source of comfort, peace, and joy in Christ because his roots go down so deep into Christ. It doesn't matter. Hungry, fed, warm, cold, naked, clothed, in danger, in comfort. If God calls him to it, he can walk through it because he who commands us enables us. He who calls us always enables us. Paul's joy, was never in his circumstances it was always in spite of them it was always in spite of them so how do we get there well there are no shortcuts it's a relationship it is spending time with Christ in his word every single day it is deciding what is most important to you it is deciding what your priorities are, because I hate to say this, our behavior always betrays our belief. Our behavior always betrays our belief. And I can teach Christ. I can preach Christ. I can study the Bible. I can do all these things. But unless I am sitting in a listening posture with my Bible open in a manner in which I can commune with the Lord, that is lip service. Our behavior betrays our belief. There is no easy way. Christianity is a relationship with a savior who made himself a slave. And he demands everything. He demands all of us. Our heart, our mind. He is seated on the throne in heavenly places. And he has sent his spirit to comfort and to guide us. And he is the one who gives joy and peace and strength. But here's the thing. We got to go get it we got to go to him to get it. I want to end our time differently. I want to show you a testimony of a woman who is living this out in a way that I just have never seen. Amy Koch is a member of Rock Point Church who uh, is um, living with a stage four metastatic cancer diagnosis. And I don't know if I've ever seen such joy. After this video, we're going to go straight into a song. We're going to respond in worship. And then we're going to have a time of prayer for anyone who needs it. And if you want to walk up here during the song for prayer, you can do that too. So.
1: My name is Amy Koch. And the reword that God gave me is rejoice. That's great. Uh, my part of the story that I want to share with you began in 2017, and um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Not really a very rejoicing kind of moment, but um, I knew that God had a purpose. His why is to glorify Him. Um, I don't know how, but, um, but through 2017, I saw many opportunities to um, praise Him and rejoice over what he was doing in my life. It was the typical breast cancer kind of thing. I had a couple of lumpectomies, I did chemo, I had radiation, and at the end of all of that, my cancer was gone. But in 2020, my uh, cancer came back as metastatic breast cancer and um, it's all over my body. It's in my lungs, my liver, my bones, and my lymph nodes. So I feel like that what God wants me to share with others in my story of cancer is that He is good no matter what, and we can rejoice because of the salvation that He's given us. Um, I think rejoice is a spiritual word. I don't think it's a um, an earthly word. I, I think it's about... The only way you can rejoice is to you have Jesus in your heart. I think we regurgitate the story of salvation so much that people don't take it serious. And, um, yes, Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and I've accepted my Savior. And that's kind of how it is. But here's how it should be. Jesus died on the cross, and that should do something to you every time you hear it. But because we know the next part, He came back to life, He resurrected. For us, he did this for us. Now, yes, he died for our sin and put together, I mean, took our pain on and and that's horrible. And that's like like the cancer in me, right? It's horrible and it's sad and it makes you wanna, it's just hard, it's it's something hard to swallow. But you go to the next step and he resurrected from the dead? I mean, how can you not rejoice in that? That's where rejoicing comes from, it's deep inside. He is our high priest who understands everything. He's gone through it. He's gone through it just like us. He knows the pain, he knows the heartache, but he knows what's coming. I cannot even imagine my life without Jesus. I, I can't imagine, I wouldn't be rejoicing if I had cancer and didn't have Jesus. I would I would feel hopeless and desperate, but I don't feel that way. I'm sad, it stinks, um, it hurts. Um, I don't wanna leave my family. I don't want people to hurt because if he takes me from cancer, and he may or may not, he's a God who can heal. But if he does, I want people to know that it's okay and they can rejoice in him because he has a bigger plan. He created us. He knows what he created us for. He is the God of the universe. He loves you so much. I want you to know that. I want you to know he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. And you know what would make me rejoice even more right now is if you don't know him or you are falling away or you just want to get closer to him? That, man, do it! It's so awesome! I love him so much! <laughs>